Hey builders, welcome back to another episode of the Build Podcast. My name is Blake Bartlett, and I'm a partner here at OpenView. If you listened to the first intro episode, you know why we're here, to figure out the new customer journey and what that means for product-led growth and SaaS more broadly. Today, we hear from Kieran Flanagan, the VP of Marketing and Growth at HubSpot. He's also the host of the Growth TLDR podcast. And having known Kieran for a few years now, I must say, if you want some of the best product-led growth advice with expert commentary, he's definitely your guy. We all know and love HubSpot, and Kieran has been at the forefront of leading HubSpot to embrace the product-led movement. In today's episode, we discuss the importance of ops roles in a product-led model, the shift occurring today in B2B marketing, and how cross-functional teams are the org design secret to success in product-led growth. All that and more on this week's episode of Build. Let's dive in. Well, Kieran, thanks so much for joining us here on the Build podcast. It's great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I am honored that you asked me to be on. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Well, jumping straight into it, what does product-led growth mean to you? And I think the important words you used in that is to me because there's many definitions, so I don't want to step on anyone's toes if they define it somewhat differently. So for me, when I think about product-led, I think it means the product is an integral part of your go-to-market, and you kind of have these cross-functional teams who optimize their product and the impact across each stage of that go-to-market. So the product is an integral way that you acquire signups, mostly freemium. That's how I think of it, but it potentially could be free trials. Like if the product could facilitate some way that you could have people take a free trial and by them taking the free trial, they would help other people sign up for that trial or that there could be customers who use the product and take some actions that they could acquire people from within their network, similar to like Calendly. I know we talked about them off mic. Then the product, you optimize the product to kind of drive usage, right? So you think about each of the SKUs you have, where you have free, basic, pro enterprise is the typical kind of SaaS model. And you really focus in on the usage. You focus in on how to get people up through the different tiers. And then you optimize the product for like, that's kind of like the monetization part and the retention part. So for me, it's when your product is an integral part of how you go to market, which means that your product team and your engineer and team are part of the go-to-market team, as well as being the team who kind of builds the product for the customers. In that piece that you mentioned where the product is an incredibly important part of the go-to-market motion, how is that different than sort of a non-product-led model? Is there a, much more of a separation between product and, and go-to-market? And how does bringing them together sort of change the equation fundamentally? Yeah. And I think the fascinating part is we went through this within HubSpot. So I kind of got the first-hand experience of what that's like. So we were, and we still are in parts, a sales-led business where we would generate leads, sales would lead that motion, qualify them, turn them into customers. And in that scenario, you have marketing and sales really trying to run the go-to-market through this kind of lead MQL, SQL customer model. And product are, for the most part, focused on building an amazing product that helps your customers be extremely happy with that, retain, look at the NPS, all of those kind of things. But they're not as much, they're not as involved as much in the kind of go-to-market discussions. Like how do you generate demand? How do you activate that demand? How do you turn that demand into MQLs and then product-led model, model is PQLs? And so 
the part where you're trying to bring those things together are actually pretty hard, right? And part of the difficulty is who kind of owns what and how do teams work together? So a good example of that is like one of the first iterations we had in terms of ownership was we had this model where marketing would own generating traffic leads and MQLs. So MQLs qualified leads that you hand off to a salesperson. And then we were trying to translate that into a product-led model. And we were like, okay, well, in a product-led model, marketing own traffic signups and PQLs. And PQLs are what now what we hand off to salespeople. And they're qualified leads from within the product and through product usage. And that sounds good, right? It's kind of clean. And then product are trying to better activate those users and they're trying to get people to go through touchless motions and retain on the product. And that's how we worked it for about 12 to 18 months. And we kind of got to a point where it, we saw value in that, but there was constant friction because for the marketing team to do anything in terms of generating PQLs, maybe they need to change some of the onboarding. Maybe they need to change some of the ways that a feature works to better surface up the upgrade point within that feature. And so you have to start to get your hands dirty on the product and the product are trying to prioritize features and things based upon a metric that is completely different, which is MPS. And so you run into these points of friction where it's really hard to get good coordination or just good synergies between the things that you're working on. And you have to learn how these teams can work together in a cohesive way across this entire spectrum of the funnel. And I can talk a little bit about how we got people aligned if that would be helpful. Yeah, no, I, I think that that would be great. One thing that occurs to me that I hadn't thought about before is exactly what you were describing there, which is now that the goals of marketing have changed, where it's instead of an MQL, which has never touched the product, but just has taken a few actions and maybe read a piece of content and has the right firmographics, but has no idea what it looks like behind the paywall, so to speak, or as a logged in experience. Now that that's shifted to be a PQL or something on that order, it requires them to actually have had experience with the product and done certain actions in the product. And so therefore, if that's what marketing is gold on, then they also need to have sort of either a collaboration or purview over product. And so the natural merger comes together. And that makes sense. The other thing that occurs to me is that in a true old school model, you had oftentimes this push and pull between sales and product. The stuff that the salespeople are saying on the phone doesn't actually match up to like what exists in real life. And so you're selling the dream, right? That's, that's something that salespeople have always done. And then you get that six-figure deal, seven-figure deal. You're like, all right, product team, we got that customer. Now we have to go build the thing that I sold. And that creates this misalignment where product is constantly chasing what the salespeople promise to the folks that signed the contract. But now you sort of, because the product is integral to go to market, whether it's marketing or sales, a lot of that like two sides of the house where the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing and constantly trying to sort of get in sync with one another. This creates an opportunity for the getting in sync to be sort of from square one. That is actually a great point. Selling something that someone already knows how it works. You cannot like try to do any kind of bait and switch. Like someone is in your product, probably using the product in a meaningful way, has already created some amount of value from it. Because if you want to go freemium, you have to get the balance right between what is in the free product and it derives enough freemium for you to tell your network, this is this cool product, but not so much that you won't pay but enough that you understand the reasons you would buy it. So it shifts the way that your sales team need to sell. So like our, our sales team, when we first went freemium, really started to work like a consultative sale. So like they 
were armed with information about the usage events that would actually correlate better to those people upgraded and retaining because the data scientists will be able to do regression analysis on our best fit customers and look, what do these people do during that seven to 10 days of setup? What are the commonalities between usage? And the sales team then have that information and can talk to those people and say, oh, well, have you tried, because you're this kind of fit, we know that companies like this are usually going to be interested in these kind of usage events and these kind of features. Have you tried this feature? Have you tried this feature? And trying to onboard them onto that feature. And so it does change the dynamic of your sale. I think that's really an important point for people to realize when you go into this kind of product-led model. And taking a bit of a step back here. So as we see the rise of this product-led model, to me, a lot of it sort of hinges on the starting point of the journey is self-serve in nature. And those are the first touches in the journey. As that happens, how does that change how folks should be thinking about who their buyer persona is or who they're, they're targeting really? Yeah, I think the fascinating thing about self-serve, and I think you can have self-serve without freemium because you could just have low touch. You could have a skew that is very low touch. You have apply no human capital. And if you think about what self-serve helps companies to do, it's better monetize their potential market, right? And so most SaaS companies, when you think about how they monetize, there's this like simplistic two by two axis with four quadrants where you have like fit and interest and fit is demographic, firmographic information. Interest is, have they shown any type of engagement with either your product and historically through sales led models, it's like website interacting with your emails, like these engagement and buying signals. And the sweet spot for SaaS companies are the quadrant that is like high interest, high fit, right? They're the sweet spot. They've shown interest. They are a great fit for our product and we try to sell those. And then you have people in the kind of low interest, but high fit. And we have people who are trying to sell those and product led. We have people who are implementing product onboarding to try to get them into the high interest bucket. But there's a wider market that may be a good fit for your product and could be actually a good business for you if you didn't have to apply human capital. And I think what a lot of SaaS companies are trying to do is widen their base using a self-serve model so they can monetize more of their market. And by not applying human capital, you have another kind of stream of revenue, but you also then have people in your product that you can better qualify through product usage for your higher tiers. And so you could even start to think about your self-serve model as a customer acquisition cost, right? It's like, you could be net neutral in that, but because it's acquiring people, helping you to actually qualify, maybe reducing the amount of money you need to spend on SDRs and BDRs, and you can get the better fit people to your account managers or your salespeople, like your unit economics are generally going to look a lot better. I think the fascinating thing about self-serve, and this is one of the conversations that we had that stuck with me, and I've talked to numerous companies about their efforts in product-led, go to market. And the thing that's really fascinating is the most complex part of self-serve is it changes who you are both marketing to and I put your focus on. So the self-serve SKU is really built for the end user. And that's kind of what we were talking about, which is you are now marketing directly to the end user. You're not really marketing to the person who maybe buys your product. It's the people who use your product. And you're trying to implement this product-led motion. So you're looking for buying signals within the usage patterns they have. And then you may trigger an email or do something else to show them about the features that are in your enterprise SKU. But the person who buys your enterprise SKU is not the person who actually uses the product on a day-by-day basis. So then you're trying to thread the needle between the end user to the budget owner. And I think that's the fascinating thing about self-serve to enterprise that companies are trying to figure out is like, how do you leverage yourself to better sell enterprise if the enterprise buyer is not the person who uses product on a day-to-day basis.
And as that persona shift happens, where perhaps you need to not only think about the executive buyer who historically has held the budget for that department, but also the end user who is more prone to or apt to self-service a product and solve their own pain, so to speak, you started to allude to it. But how does that change how you think about marketing in a B2B context today? I wonder if most companies end up meeting each other in the middle at some point. And so you have like great examples of companies who build into the enterprise and they build down through self-serve. And part of the reason may not just be because they want additional revenue, it's because they want to commoditize that market and they want to make it really difficult for other companies to come in and disrupt them from below. A good example is if you look at Adobe, they've brought the price for those kind of products way, way down, and they try to commoditize the lower end of the market. And then self-serve companies generally go in, build for the end user. Those people pay some amount of money for a SKU, but when you want to go up market, there's more people involved in the sale. And so you have to build into kind of sales-assisted motions. And so as a marketing team, I think at any given point in time, you may be on one end of the spectrum. So you're marketing and acquiring broad-based end users, you're trying to get as many people to use your product. And over time, you are gravitating towards layering on more specific marketing tailored towards the person who may buy your enterprise product. And you're trying to get people from your self-serve base into enterprise or trying to do something similar to what Dropbox did back in the day, where they would use this algorithm to sweep across their self-serve base and filter out companies that could be a good fit for enterprise and just rotate those to salespeople. So it's really like this base that their salespeople can actually prospect into. So I still think for a marketing team, you're at some point in time within that company's lifespan, maybe at either end of the spectrum, you're just focusing on the end user or you're just focusing on the budget owner if you're kind of doing enterprise marketing. And then at some point you kind of merge and you have to try to figure out how to do both, right? You're trying to do this broad-based acquisition to get as many people into the product as possible, but then you're doing this very targeted specific marketing to get budget owners aware of your company and you can leverage your self-serve base to do that. But it is a different type of motion, I think. Got it. That's a perspective that even in real time, I'm learning from right now because I certainly have had a perspective or at least asked the question of because of the rise of the end user, because of the rise of product-led and self-service, does this fundamentally mean that B2B SaaS companies need to be fundamentally rethinking even the DNA of marketing? But it's actually not so much of a dichotomy of like it's one or the other, the old is out, the new is in. But instead, as you were saying, it's actually both. You need to have some of that like Spotify, Netflix DNA for the end user. And how do we create virality? And how do we create a compelling offer and a compelling product on a free basis that would entice them to actually swipe that credit card and convert once they hit the paywall? But then once we get some momentum, that's when we need to start talking to their manager and then eventually to the manager's manager, which is the C-level executive or a VP-level executive you would have gone to originally. And that's when you need to bring in some of that more traditional B2B marketing DNA on top of that journey that started with more consumer growth-oriented tactics. Is that a, a good way to think about that or is that wrong? I think it's a great way to think about it. You're completely right in that. I think if I think about the shift in B2B marketing, there's like three circles and at certain points they can overlap with each other. But you have one circle, which is to your point, is more of a broad-based marketing. How do I acquire a large percentage of this market to use my freemium tour or my, or my self-serve model that is very low cost so I can have, and it has a broad use case so I can acquire a bunch of the market into that. And there's a bunch of teams that I have that I could just take out of HubSpot and put into a BDC company and they would perform better than most teams. They just have that kind of skill set. 
But then there's the circle where you're trying to still do the very specific targeted kind of B2B marketing towards the budget owner. And you still need to have that skill within your company for you to go up market and really drive your ASP up. And then there's the part which is like most of the successful companies are just media houses for their industry. And I know this is kind of the HubSpot mantra forever, but it's still very, very true. I think that that does change the type of person you would probably hire. They're not the typical kind of B2B marketer. And a B2B market, like a marketing team, when you have these product-led companies that have broad usage, lots of users trying to go up market, you have that kind of Venn diagram mixed between more kind of B2C or the companies that you mentioned, traditional B2B that can go after budget owners, overlapping those things is like a real powerhouse in terms of how you can be the media publication for your industry. And then the other fascinating thing that we could maybe talk about, or it's complete, completely on a different topic, is how product-led is changing companies from the tree-based structure to this pod-based structure. And I'm sure you've talked to so many companies who are organizing themselves into pods and squads across metrics. Let's dig into that. So I'm familiar with pods and squads, whether it's like before people talked about sales pods and let's get an SDR and AE and an account manager in that pod or something like that. And I, I'm familiar with squads on an engineering team as a way to do agile. But as you start to think about doing that within a product-led model across the organization, what does that look like in real life? Yeah, so I, and I'm still really trying to get my thoughts clear on that. And I speak to a lot of companies. A lot of what I ask them about is their team structure. So I find it fascinating that product-led companies or team structure is definitely slightly different than traditional B2B companies. And if you think about like, what does a org chart look like for a company? And it's these tree-based functions from top to bottom, and they're siloed from each other. And in any company today, that's actually not how it work for the most part gets done in the go-to-market. So maybe there are teams that can be very siloed and work on the projects that they need to work on, but the go-to-market just overlap with each other. A lot of the advantages or a lot of the benefits that growth has brought to companies is this distilling down your funnel into these very concise metrics and the ones that actually matter. And then you can look at your acquisition to activation, to monetization, to retention, and think through who are the best people, regardless of functionally where they sit, that could actually make impact against that metric. And so you're kind of thinking about cross-functional teams. And so maybe on the activation side of things, you need a copywriter, you need a data analyst, you need a UX person, you need a designer, you need a couple of growth engineers, and you need a PM. And they're multidisciplinary pods that form around the most important metrics for that company in any given point of time. And depending where you are in your growth trajectory, so I think smaller companies from my experience, are very agile and they're looking at their metrics on a six-month cadence and they are spinning up pods and spinning down pods based upon the metric that they want to actually prioritize. Companies that are way more established, maybe like a HubSpot, have pods that just exist for that metric and that's their sole purpose. And the way that I visualize that is the Coinbase engineer, he had this thing called work maps and it flips the functional org chart on its head and it looks at projects based upon the different functions needed to do that project. And like, when you look at, am I under-resourced? It's not like, do I have enough marketers? Do I have enough salespeople? Do I have the skill sets needed to be successful within this pod for this project? And it's a different way to look at your resources and your team alignment. We could say the rise of product-led really is inside the organization from an org design or a structure standpoint, 
it really is the rise of cross-functional. Yeah, to excel and thrive in a product-led company, you are great at cross-team collaboration or cross-functioning collaboration. It's interesting. It's if I think about the what product-led does, it makes everything about your business agile, not just your product development and that we're doing daily releases or weekly releases, whatever it is, but we're doing that kind of rapid iteration on every aspect of the business because now product and go-to-market are tightly coupled. And so if we think about where this whole pod structure, squad structure started, most typically it's been in engineering with the rise as we've moved from waterfall to agile, you have to change uh, team structures and that like brought about the motion or the, the rise of like DevOps versus like two separate functions and all this stuff. And so like the cross-functional nature and like squads and pods and all of that has taken hold and is, is very much the standard in engineering. But as more of the organization becomes agile and also as engineering or product becomes more embedded into other aspects of the organization, we need to see the sort of copy paste of that same approach across the org as well. So that's a perspective I had not heard before, and but I think it resonates with me for sure. So what exactly is a growth team? What role do they play in this journey? Like I love one of your questions where we're going to talk about growth marketing. So there's many different variations of growth. The way that I think about growth is really coming back to the product-led funnel. I think that a big influence on product-led is that there are these growth teams and they can do this kind of work. And so a growth team is really figuring out how you can optimize each stage of the product-led journey from acquisition to activation to monetization to retention. And so I have this way to describe like the way I view growth is in these kind of three core phases that I articulate sometime last year, which was there's the chaos phase in a lot of companies. And we were definitely in the chaos phase when we first started Freem, which is, hey, let's do growth. We think it's like it should do these things. And let's try to move the needle on some of the metrics. And we were very fortunate that we had we had Brian Balfour as the person that was actually instilling growth principles within HubSpot. And I think he's done that for much of the industry. And you're kind of trying to figure out, but as a company, how does this shift all of the other team's workloads? And so it's slightly chaotic in terms of who owns what, who's responsible for what, what are the most important metrics to look at. And so there's all these kind of points of friction. And so it's not working very, very smoothly. Out of that chaotic phase comes the goodness. Like you can actually see real substantial impact on some of the metrics you prioritize. You also have had a lot of like fires to put out in terms of like teams that get annoyed and frustrated with each other. And then you move into this centralized phase where you have a central growth team who now has a remit against these metrics. And they're usually looking at how they can improve the acquisition of the product, the activation, the monetization, the retention, and maybe there's some other nuances in terms of what growth does in other companies. And I think what's fascinating is it does growth in companies and it has somewhat in HubSpot the influence of that growth team within product starts to decentralize elements of growth across the product team. So our product team now when they're building features are thinking about how do I onboard people to my feature? What is the monetization trigger points within this feature to get someone to upgrade to a higher tier within the product? How do I build things into my product to bring virality into this feature? Like this is a way that I can expose this feature through usage to other people who are non-HubSpot customers or non-HubSpot users, how can I optimize that thing? And they'll lean on the growth team for support on those things, but the growth team has helped decentralize a lot of those skill sets among the product team. I think that would be a fascinating evolution to look at is that does growth just become part of what a PM and a product team 
do when they're building products? And is it a separate function or not? Something that I hear a lot is also the fuzziness between growth and marketing and who does what. And especially when you introduce terms like growth marketing, it gets even more confusing. So what is the difference between growth and marketing? How do those two separate teams collaborate? And what is growth marketing? I think that growth for me is you have to be working in the product. And for the most part, you have to have influence over the product. And it's why most growth teams I think live within somewhere within the product org. Now there's other cases where I've spoke to companies and growth lives in marketing, but whenever I've heard growth live in marketing and I've dug in, they're not influencing the product roadmap. They're not doing a lot of things around features. They have some ways that they can do things within the product through chat, or they can do things in the product through in-app messaging, but that could be a great place for growth to live in that company, in that specific company. From my viewpoint, growth is you have to be touching the product and you have to have influence over the product and you have to be able to influence the product roadmap to be able to improve the metrics you're accountable for. And I think marketing is why you hear the kind of term growth marketing. I think marketing has learned from growth or has adopted growth principles in the way that they're more agile, they're more experimental, iterative in their process. I think one of the things that I learned a lot about how to be a better marketer from working with product and working closely within product and engineering during the kind of growth phase of HubSpot. And this is why I love pods, because you can learn from other people in your function, but you can learn so much more as well from other people who sit within other functions. I think the growth marketing term, and I've tried to, some companies I've talked to have asked me to like help hire their head of growth marketing. I'm like, you should just try to hire a marketer who does marketing and understands growth principles because the growth marketer doesn't really mean anything. I think there's like marketing and there's growth. And I think there's a clear handoff between what those two things are. Getting to the next big phase, and this is another huge question that I get about the customer journey. So if a lot of what we've been talking about thus far with marketing and the role of growth and product and, and all that, that's kind of about the top of the funnel and the discovery, the sort of initial sign up, onboarding, activation, perhaps even initial conversion. And then at some point, if all of that's cranking and doing really well, then you start to get to a point where now your accounts are starting to grow and they're starting to get large to the point where they're starting to ask questions of, how do I move from swiped credit cards to an invoice? Or I'm looking for this to go from the initial small team deployment to a much broader sort of organization-wide deployment. I got a lot of questions. I got some security concerns, like whatever it is. And all of those things start to be much more difficult to self-serve. And so it creates an opportunity for, for humans to get involved. But exactly when, exactly where, who are the humans? Like there's a lot of confusion around that. What do you think about that? I mean, when do humans get involved in a self-service funnel? And, and maybe we can start with which humans get involved. Is this support? Is this success? Is this sales? Is this something else? I feel like this is the most complex part of rolling out a product-led model is when and where you introduce humans into that model. And so there's many companies that are now adopting freemium. If you're a sales-led business and you want to do freemium, don't do freemium unless you have the resources to hire data analysts. Because what freemium will do is just give you an influx of new users and you'll end up having sales, like spend a lot of their time on demand that is not a good fit for the product that you actually want them to buy because it just opens up the floodgates to people who can use your product. And I think the challenge is how do you understand when and where to get humans involved in the process? But is that 
quadrants of fit and intent and the lower quadrant where the lower two quadrants where you have low interest or high interest goes through this touchless motion and you never have to spend human capital on it because if you did the unit economics may look worse than you want it to look and so you can always take that part of your model keep it self-serve and never have to introduce human customer success or human sales but trying to do that in practice is so much more complex. And I think things you can do is try to figure out how you can look at behavior within your product that would suggest that these people are a good fit for your sales team. And I think in some companies, if you're AS, dependent upon ASP and how large that is, it could be a customer success team and not an inside sales model. Like I think a company like Typeform, for example, do upgrades, but it's through customer success, not an inside sales model. And that could be outdated information. But the human that you involve in that, I think is dependent upon the model you have and the ASP you have. But for it to be worth their time, you have to get so good at trying to figure out the right usage within your product coupled with the right firmographic and demographic data. So you do not burden your sales team with a ton of business that is very low ASP, that is on your like very basic tier. And it's not what you want to actually have them spend their time on. Yeah, I've seen two common mistakes here. One is exactly what you said, which is you go self-service, you get the huge influx of leads, and then you apply salespeople to it. Say if you have that motion or that model, and very quickly, the salespeople find the one lead of the person in Amazon that signed up. They're like, oh, goody, now we're going to get Amazon as a customer. And they start working that account. But it was one individual person in a really massive company and getting from that initial tire kicker adopter all the way up to sort of like now Amazon's like a big deal for us is a lot easier said than done. And so if everybody's doing that and sort of getting distracted by the potential of which URLs look the most compelling in terms of the signups, you very quickly are spending a lot of, there's a lot of wasted energy for stuff that's never going to convert. The other end of the spectrum is that you just treat self-service as a lead gen funnel and you really don't care about the majority, like 99% of people who come through, you're like, I am happy to let them die on the vine because I really care about the 1% who represent my ICP. And then I'm going to, as fast as possible, put them into a separate, more traditional sales funnel. It really is limiting because you're not taking advantage of all the power that could be in self-serve. And you're really just using it as like kind of a marketing tactic. I think that is an interesting point because I do see companies who use self-serve as a customer acquisition channel. And so the cost could be net neutral. I think some businesses probably can discover accounts easier than others. So if you have a team-based product that has seats, you can create something so you know if there's X number of seats from a company in your self-serve model, you can rotate that to a salesperson. So there's certain companies that within their self-serve business, there is just usage events or data from that self-serve base that is just going to be easier for them to leverage to be able to figure out how to use that and rotate demand to salespeople. And so to your point, this, in that case, self-serve is maybe cost neutral, it helps to acquire, but for you to get benefit from it, even if it's a customer acquisition and cost neutral, you have to be leveraging self-serve then to, as a form of like prospecting, as a form of like surfacing your accounts to the sales team, because that's the way you've kind of costed it, right? As a customer acquisition source. And so these are the things you have to think about when you are going into the product-led motion is, if I have enough resources for a data analyst, you see a huge spike in ops people because the importance of ops people in this is just integral to how it works. I think one of the things HopSwell got lucky with is we had some incredible people in ops when we were growing out our product head model. And I just saw the impact that they had on the success of that business. And it was like huge. And so you have to think about when I'm doing freemium, do I have the resources? Am I going to be able to build 
a product usage score of some sorts to surface up people to my sales team? What would that be based upon? And if you can't do that in your head of like, I just have no way of how I would figure out how to take people from that self-serve base into my enterprise here and rotate them to sales reps, then you have to start to wonder like, is this the right go-to-market to me? Because it's not the right go-to-market for everyone just because it's the in thing to do. I think it is for like most of the businesses, but there are cases where you may just want to do demo trial, get a salesperson on the phone, and that's the best way to sell to your buyer. And as a, a last topic on this point to dig into, so we had touched on ownership. And specifically, in my mind, I have a big question around ownership of revenue and of growth numbers and targets. So historically, the number, so to speak, has always been owned by sales. So it's kind of in the CRO or the VP of sales where the buck stops here sort of deal. And now with the product touching growth and monetization and growth touching growth and monetization and your comments about marketing and the sort of new fuzzier role between sales and success, like does that change? Who owns the number? Does everybody have a number? What happens to that in the product-led model? Yeah, and I think this is where you need to get to to excel in a product-led company is establishing clear SLAs between the go-to-market teams. And that was our like that was the big process we went through is when we got to that point, everything started to work a lot smoothly. And so like in a simplistic world where you have a product like company, you can work back from revenue to your PQLs or some companies have PQAs, product qualified accounts for product qualified leads. You can then work back to the active user or the active teams, and then you can work back to the number of signups. And in that world, you can decide, okay, like who are the best teams or pods to own these metrics? and ensure that they have a clear accountability to those metrics. And if any one team is missing their metric, you know the funnel or the revenue is not gonna be where it needs to be. Where they report up functionally, I think then is unique to each company, right? You have a collection of probably marketers, product, sales, customer success, and engineering. You do see the popularity grow for like a chief customer officer because they kind of encompass the go-to-market and the customer experience, and they can manage all of the teams who are accountable for that. But again, I think in every company, it can be different. And again, it does depend a lot on your size. But for me, that SLA between teams where you have your monthly or quarterly number, you reverse engineer your funnel, each team knows what they're accountable for. There's cross-functional teams across those metrics, if that's what's needed. In some cases, it's not. Like if you have a monetization metric, a lot of that can just be owned by product and engineer. Maybe marketing don't need to be involved. Maybe anyone else needs to be involved. If you have a touch this model, maybe there's a little sales interaction and a lot of it's done through live chat in the app through customer success. But that reverse engineering of your funnel, again, why you need great data analysts and how you implement that to ensure that there is accountability across team, which is why you need great ops people, is pivotal to being successful in a product-led business. And can you walk us through what you mean by the role of these ops people? A lot of it is the systems you need to build to be able to PQL and pass PQL into different systems and be able to trigger emails. It's the operation of how the whole freemium business go to market work for us. And so not only that is a lot of what we got from our ops team was the core prioritization of business metrics. So we just had people, a couple of people on the freemium team that had a big impact on showing us the gaps we had where were the weak points, where were the strong points for the coming quarter, where we actually needed to focus on. When you're reversing engineering that funnel, how does the whole system work top to bottom? How do you acquire users? How do the PQL events trigger something? How do those triggers result in people going to the sales team? Like the operation of how a product-led model works is quite complex. I saw a huge 
huge advantage of having like really stellar ops and data analyst people help us prioritize the right things, get the systems working so it worked in a very fluid way, showing us where the gaps were and where we should really be focused on. And I think that was the big inflection points in our freemium journey. And some of the people who worked in the ops and data analysts, I think, were a big part of the success of that. The ops roles in general have evolved and become extremely strategic at this point as the cross-functional revolution has come. And what I think about there is because historically, like the oversimplified version of things is I have one marketing ops person and they are the admin of my marketing automation solution. I have one sales ops person and they're the admin of Salesforce or whatever my CRM solution is the end. And now it's not really about being an admin of a particular solution. It's really about thinking about the logistics across the entire cross-functional customer journey. And the data stitches that together, but the people who analyze that data and create processes around that data so that it is scalable and things can actually move from point A to point B through what is a multi-touch or sort of a somewhat complicated set of handoffs. If you think about it from an organizational standpoint, the thing that ties that all together is the data analysts and the ops roles that you were mentioning. There is a huge future for ops. And I think ops is going to go through somewhat of a transformation as we move more and more into product-led. And the way I think about ops is they're in the engine room, right? They are the people who are in the engine room and they are not only optimizing how this system works, they're very good at knowing the business context and being able to like skew the team towards the things that they should be hyper aware of. That was a really good summary because I think that the ops maybe is seen as more of the admin role. And I think they're going to be seen more as like core to the business and a strategic part of the business's success. Well, Kieran, this has been an awesome conversation, super informative on the pro tips behind how to do product led and how to embrace um, this new customer journey. For folks who want to keep learning from your perspective and, and folks in your network, I know you have a podcast that talks about a lot of things around growth. Can you tell us about that and where to find it? I have the Growth TLDR podcast and try to interview amazing people like Blake and other founders and people who just have good perspective in terms of growth, product-like journey, and just how to grow a business. And so every Tuesday we do an interview and then every Thursday we do a 10 to 15 minute episode where we talk about one common challenge that growth and marketing people have and try our best to give you our thoughts and recommendations on how you can overcome that. So for everyone who wants to keep their learning on growth and on product-led, go check out the Growth TLDR wherever you get podcasts. Thank you, Kieran, for joining us. This has been great. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Another great conversation. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Build. If you liked what you've heard, Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe for new episodes that drop each week. Follow me, Blake Bartlett, on LinkedIn for daily product-led growth content and let me know what you think about the show. Join me this season on Build as we figure out the new customer journey and what comes next in product-led growth. One thing is for sure, all of us in the product-led community are in this together. Take care, everyone, and I'll see you next week here on Build.